Hello and welcome to another English edition of my podcast Helium Talk, das Kunstgespräch. I want to keep this introduction short because this is already the second part of my conversation with fellow gallerist Jonathan Levine from the Jonathan Levine Projects in New Jersey, and we probably should dive right into this one. Just wanted to say that both Jonathan and I are super happy about the huge feedback we got for our first talk. That one was spread wide over the social web and I'm so pleased that people are actually sharing and discussing this. Jeff Soto, for example, an artist who has been working with Jonathan for most of his career and who I admire for probably the same amount of time, called this a podcast about the state of galleries in this Instagram era of artists entrepreneurs, which could basically be the subheadline to this show. At the end of this talk with Jonathan, our love for music shows through, and we promote Jonathan's band Cyclone Static, which I really love. German magazine Visions just called their music power punk, and yeah, there's a lot of power and a lot of punk in them. And in these last minutes, while we edit shamelessly self-promoting our musical ventures, I throw in a version of Elvis Presley's Blue Christmas that I recorded this December for a charity benefiting homeless people in Hamburg. If you hear this before December 26 midnight, you can still support it at heliumcowboy.com blue. As a little extra, I added this cover version of this song at the end of this podcast, but due to licensing reasons, I'll have to cut it out again in January 2019. So thank you all. Keep listening, liking, sharing and talking about this conversation. It means a lot to us that it means something to you. Keep it coming on any of the channels you prefer or write me directly at heliumtalk and heliumcallboy.com because old school Jonathan and York still love to get email. All right, let's do this. Here's part two of my Helium Talk podcast with Jonathan Levine. Helium Talk. Helium Talk. Did you have some topics you wanted to talk about in particular today? Well, I think it's one thing that I want to do because we have a lot of listeners here in Germany, actually, who um, who downloaded the... Uh, and listen to the first podcast and I'm not sure whether all of them are so 100% aware of, of where you come from, what you're doing. Maybe if you just you know, kind of like five minutes where all this madness started for you, um, how you became a gallerist in the first place. Uh, not like the whole Adam Eve story, but just a little bit, you know, sort of inside where you come from and how you, your first exhibitions and how you got hooked to the whole uh, art world thing. Well, um, this is always an interesting story because I, I mean, because I didn't plan on being a gallerist. There wasn't like a point in my life where I was like, oh, it'd be so cool to own a gallery and live in New York City. That was never on my radar. That wasn't what I was thinking about when I was, you know, growing up or even in my, my late teens and early twenties, you know, I kind of was a, like yourself, I was involved in a lot of different things, music, yeah. putting out like a fanzine. I had a little record label. In my late teens, um, I used to book shows. So I was really involved in like sort of underground music culture, which always like bled, bled, bled into uh, art culture. And, you know, from seeing like weird underground art, like Pusshead on record covers and things like that to, you know, collecting comic books and just, you know, having this kind of relationship with visual culture, record album covers and things. And uh, not really being sure exactly what I wanted to do, just knowing that I was wanted to be creative. And I ended up getting an art degree um, in sculpture, 
and at a college right outside of New York. And I still was really heavily involved in the subculture, and I was really into underground comics. So really early on, I started curating these shows of underground comic artists that I really liked um, in bars. And there was one place I did that at. It was a place called Maxwell's in Hoboken, which is sort of legendary yeah. indie yeah. rock bar, indie rock club, but it's no longer there. And then that led me to curating shows regularly at CBGB's Gallery, which was next to CBGB's, the famous punk rock club. I think everybody knows that. Yeah. So, I mean, I was doing this in the late 90s, and I was working with artists like Frank Kozik and Coop and really early Shepard Fairey selling like $30, $40 silkscreen posters. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so that's kind of how I got into it, and it became sort of like this addiction for me, this sort of bug, and uh, I just kept having to do it. And eventually – uh, I opened my own gallery, and that was in outside of New York because I couldn't afford to do it in New York. Um, it was in this town called New Hope, PA. It's a tourist town. And then I moved to Philly, and I was in Philly for a couple of years. And then I started to do really well that I could move back to New York. So then I had this gallery in New York for 12 years. Was it always called Jonathan Levine Gallery? No. In the beginning? No, in the beginning uh, – The gallery was called Tin Man Alley, and the reason why is because the first gallery was like half a collectible store and half a gallery. So we like had like retro, kitschy toys like tin robots and um, <laughs> retro clocks and, and, and sort of, you know, uh, novelty toys and things like this, and that fit in with the aesthetic of what the art I was showing. And that basically supported the gallery. And as we finally, as we started to sell work through the internet, really, I put up a website, I was able to slowly phase that out. So for two years, I had this gallery in New Hope, and then for two more years, I had it in Philadelphia. So when I moved to New York, I phased the whole, you know, toy store, gift store out of the business. And I was having a conversation. I remember it was like, I think it was the Clayton Brothers and Eric White. Maybe Joe, Joe Soren was in this conversation and they were visiting Philly on a book tour and we were eating at a diner and I was making my plan to move to New York. And I was like, should I call it Tin Man Alley? Should I call it Jonathan Levine? That seems really pretentious. They're like, you should call it Jonathan Levine. Yeah. So I became Jonathan Levine Gallery um, and then Jonathan Levine Project. So that's kind of because, it, you know, I guess the time – The kind of work we were showing um, wasn't being taken seriously by the art world. And so you had to present it in a serious way. So that was the goal of Jonathan Levine Gallery, you know, that I sounded like a serious gallerist. And if I had Tin Man Alley as the name of my gallery, it didn't, wouldn't sound particularly serious. So that's how we were trying to conceptualize the work in New York at that time. And that's why we went that way. Yeah, I think that's um, that's that's been an issue for uh, f for many years. That like galleries are always called after the name of the owner, and um, I think if you have uh, a name that kind of sounds like yours and that's easy to recognize or remember, um, with my name, my last name, uh, which only works probably in Germany, yeah, <laughs> Heikhaus. Um, so I I know how it's butchered in most 
any language outside Germany. Um, but I always want, also wanted, to, I, I thought about different name just because I did, wanted to get away from this established setup because that's what I didn't want to achieve. Um, for me, it was probably a smart choice. It's not for everyone. It can go terribly wrong. I agree with you, with you on, on that one. Uh, but I like the sound of, of Jonathan Levine. I think that kind of rolls nicely. Um, so yeah, you know, I can't say I put a lot of thought into it. I mean, yeah. I think my name is pretty good. It's easy. People remember it, but I, I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. It was just kind of like, okay, that's my name. Um, I mean, honestly, I was a little bit aware of the fact that my name's Jewish and in New York city, that's not a bad thing. So, you know, it sounds like a gallerist name, you know, I was like, okay, whatever. Um, although probably what people thought of me and who I actually am are two different stories. So sure. um, that's always a funny thing when people meet you and they just know your name and they're like, oh, you're not what I thought. I was like, yeah. But I mean, that's the, you know, I think that's the whole idea of when you're naming, when you're, that, that's how the whole New York gallery thing works. You sound like an, an important pretentious gallerist, you know, and it works, I guess. Yeah. I was just thinking how we met. I think um, that was actually in Hamburg, right? We knew of each other's, but you were visiting Germany at that time and That's right. came to Hamburg and um, just at some point um, stood in my uh, in my small gallery space here in uh, St. Pauli. Yeah, I don't know if maybe we had some emails back and forth. I don't know if we ever actually had a conversation on the phone, but I was aware of you and I was aware of the fact that you had... Um, recommended us to scope but we still didn't get in that year and uh, <laughs> and so i was visiting hamburg with at the time i was dating this woman who was who had lived there for a while and we went to visit some friends and we came and visited you and yeah. we had a great time yeah i remember that that was nice But I think it's that's 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 one thing we met also up with Ralf Krüger at that time, who's uh, runs a gallery in Hamburg. That's right, uh, and who was I um, still is uh, a lot into the whole lowbrow uh, and, and rock poster art, which at that point I think he was the only one in right. Germany, maybe even in Europe, yeah. doing that and for at all. So there were some connections, and we spent yeah, we had a nice evening and, and day there. Yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it a lot. And then that's a good thing if you make these make these. Uh, acquaintances and friendships over time i think that's something that you need in a business like this especially to understand different markets like you know i'm so much you have to learn about the german market or about german artists or about uh, me about american artists and american art i think it's also good to to be able to um tell some of the artists to show because i remember i wanted to show i think jeff soto for a while um And I, that basically ran through you, you know, I never contacted him personally directly. I just said, well, you're showing him, let's talk about if we can integrate him in the show once or twice, which we then, you know, did like he was in a group show only last year, I think. And, uh, before sometimes, yeah. So there are a few artists. I think you've also worked with Tim Biscop, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there were a lot of, uh, not a lot, but a few artists that well, were actually back across then it both parts. You know, back then, all that made sense. You know, it yeah. worked. Like, because it worked because the artist participated. And, I mean, you know, it was just different. You know, there wasn't Instagram. So, you know, they needed you. And, you know, I was traveling a lot around that time, meeting other gallerists. Obviously, you know, I was also friendly with um, 
who you're friends with as well, uh, the Spanish gallery. Um, Iguapop. Iguapop, yeah. So, you know, we were yeah. we were sharing artists and it made sense, you know. Like, yeah. I always try to have good relationships with the galleries that I shared artists with. And, you know, you, you understood that, you know, the artists would show with you and they'd also show with other galleries and that was good for their market and it helped build their market and helped them have a larger market and get, you know, different recognition and blah, blah, blah. So it all made sense. But like these days, artists don't care about that. They don't really need you to do that for them. They just, they, you know, they're not even dealing with galleries that much, let alone, you know, the network that, you know, we created. So, um, it was a different time. It was exciting. I loved it. I loved coming you know, I ended up traveling a lot to a lot of places for that particular reason, to meet artists, to meet gallerists, um, to help build careers. I would go to Brazil a lot for that, um, Italy, Germany, England. Um, it was great, France, but the, the market doesn't really function that way anymore. So, uh, you know, I guess that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I think it, that's what could also <clears throat> kind of lead into maybe our, our main topic today. I mean, if we want to pick that, with so many others that we can pick from. But I, I you know, so things, a few things that we've um, that we've uh, talked about in our in our first conversation was uh, the the the, the uh, importance of or the changes that come through the whole uh, development of online. I mean, we both had strong websites early on i mean america has always been a few years ahead in in regard in terms of uh the internet and how websites you know so i remember when i started when i worked with the first websites and we did the first websites then there was not much uh knowledge or even interest here in germany and then uh, america was already so f much further ahead in those terms but we had a very very good website with helium Cobb at the beginning maybe one of the reasons why we were Uh, internationally recognized in the first place because people could actually check us out online and right. not just a business card, but like images from shows and artworks and you could interact and stuff like that. Um, but from there to today where you actually, we all compete about, you know, sort of um, same contacts and, 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 and stuff like that. There's a lot of things that have changed. And one thing that, that people always, I mean, the whole commerce has changed through the internet, and yes, right. uh, there there are a few markets like like ours, like the art market, where it has changed also, but where it's very very difficult because our goods, the products that we have, if you want to say that, they are not they are not uh, they're not internet ready, so to say. So that's very difficult. So how did you? When did it start for you too that you started like first online sales and did you do that through your website or? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Like I remember early on friends, like say the late nineties and they were putting up websites and stuff and people were saying, people just are not going to buy original art through the internet. It's just not going to work. And so I remember those being my early experiences and then like not really paying too much attention to it. And these sites were pretty basic And when I opened the, the first Tin Man Alley in 2001, there was this guy who came to the gallery as a designer. His name's Matt Lusich. And he's like, I'll design a site for you. I'll do it for trade. And he just really liked the store and he made this super cool, kitschy site for me. And, you know, it was pretty basic. 
And I remember putting up some Glenn Barr work and all of a sudden somebody from Texas calls me and buys a painting. And I was like, what? And then that is what sort of catapulted my business forward. Suddenly people were coming to me through the internet and buying work. And very quickly, uh, I was doing half my business online to people predominantly in the United States when that started to become international. But when was that? Around time was that? That was, you know, that started in 2001, 2002. And then uh, by the time I got to New York, which is 2005, more than half my business was online. Um, and it was sort of like, well, and, and, and it made sense because if you're working with an artist and they have an LA show once a year and then maybe they have a new, they have, you know, a New York show once a year and then maybe they have a, you know, or they only do a show a year. There's a limited amount of re, you know, um, of their product basically. So collector will, they really want a piece. They'll buy it from anyone, wherever they can find it. And just as people do now, they'll, basically shop around for the cheapest deal. They'll end up buying on Amazon instead of going to the store because, (laughs) you know, it's cheaper on Amazon. I do that all the time. I'm guilty. So, um, you know, the, the internet was changing a lot of things and, you know, I created a strong brand for myself. People went to show with me in New York. So I was getting the really good artists at the time that people were really into. But what I did notice at that time is that, Galleries like mine, you know, be it Billy Shire, Rock LaRue, Mary Karnowski, um, I'm probably forgetting somebody, uh, but those were the, the, the main three other galleries um, yep. that are basically still around that were sort of like my competitors, my peers, you know, we shared artists, etc., we were way ahead of the traditional gallery market in regards to putting work online. I mean, when we moved into New York, most New York galleries did not have their inventory online. It took them quite a few years to catch up, interestingly, and to adapt. Yeah, but it's also it's also because in this market there are certain things that are different to change. Behaviors are different to change. Uh, the the traditional galleries they didn't want didn't want to put that out. You know, so they were afraid if we put those out and have too much information out there, if people know too much about these things, they also may decide. I mean, people could decide, hey, Jonathan has this work by, I don't know, one of the artists who shared with Mary, for example, and then they can go and look at her side and then they can make a decision, which is just how business goes. <laughs> yeah. But for in, in the gallery, traditional gallery model, that was, it was, everything was kept very exclusive, you know, so yeah, exclusive. it was the total opposite of what we're having now. Yes, absolutely it was. And I mean, I still think there's a certain amount of, personally, I, you know, I, there's a certain amount of decorum that you want to present work in, but at the same time, collectors want it really easy. They're just like, I just want the price. I want to know everything. And they don't really realize that sometimes that's not, they don't understand like what's best for the artist career. You know, there's all these things they're not understanding why you're trying to control the market in a certain way because you have to protect things in a certain way. So for example, maybe I shouldn't talk about these things, but I'm going to, um, if you have an artist who, you know, they, they had a really, they've had a really strong career and their work is selling really well. This is a really typical situation. And suddenly their market's not doing very well. It could be they basically have just fallen out of fashion. 
Unfortunately, the gallery business is very much like a lot of other businesses where maybe the artist just isn't fashionable or something anymore. Just who knows what. Collectors cycle through things just like anything. It's one of my big issues with culture right now, how disposable it is, how people always want to move on to the next thing. So you have an artist. They make a body of work. Maybe it's not a good body of work. Uh, maybe what's happened is their prices have gotten inflated too much for a variety of reasons. And so the show happens and you sell very little work or you sell no work. And you, some collector wants to be like, they were like, they're like, I just want to go to the site and see all the prices online and I want to see what's available. Well, two things. A, you don't necessarily want people to know what the prices are because it, in our business, it supposedly looks tacky unless it's under a certain amount of money. You know, people will open a picture and they're like an image and like, holy crap, why is that $25,000? They have no understanding of the artist market. They think it's ridiculous. Or they see that it's, they, more importantly, they see the work isn't selling. So if the work's not selling, they're thinking to themselves, why should I buy this if it's not selling? Because then, you know, people are sort of approaching, understandably, people are approaching the market like, is this actually worth what this person's asking for it? So... And it could just be they had a bad show. It could be their market is suffering and their their prices were overinflated. There's all sorts of reasons why. It could be the market just got soft. Um, So you can't really – you hurt the artist that way. And you're also then selling their work like you're – like we don't sell – our our job as dealers is not to sell work like we're selling gadgets. Um, Listen, in my my toy store – um, you know, I could sell tin robots and, you know, people knew there were endless amounts of them and this was the price and maybe they could go online and find one on eBay for, or Amazon for a dollar less, whether they, they want to spend that money. But, you know, at some point, if I'm not moving my inventory in the store, I can just say, you know, half off sale. Well, you can't do that with the art market. So like you, you really can't, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe explain that a little because it's an interesting thing. The the, the prices um, that we display online or uh, wherever. I mean, I agree that there's a certain amount of price range that is um, not very harmful to you know sort of to to put you know sort of put online or to show. But I mean, it's like people expect to be informed about the prices immediately, and it might you know sort of there's also the risk of people walking past it if they say, well, it's this is going to be too expensive for me anyway. I'm not going, not even going to ask, you know? So I think that's like the lower price range where you can do that to show, oh, it's not that expensive. Right. But I agree when you come to a certain level of prices, it's, uh, it's getting more confidential. Uh, agreement. At, at the end of the day, you know, there's a limited amount of work out there. You're dealing with an artist's legacy, their whole body of work. You have to think of, this is how I do it. Other people are different. All my, when I'm working with artists, I'm invested in them. And I'm looking to protect them. And I realize they can only put out a little bit minimal amount of work. And if you're protecting them and the work's hard to get, then people are going to want it more. And it's going to essentially be easier to sell. But I think about this. And I mean, I'm kind of bouncing around here. Um, I have to apologize to the listeners here. I'm a a little bit hungover today uh, because I I drank a little bit too much last night. Not too much, but, you know, I'm 50. So as I said, you know. I don't recover like I used to, um, <laughs> but you think about this, you're selling a painting and I, I'm not going to, and I see this all the time. 
um, you're selling a painting by an artist and suddenly let's say that, you know, that people are buying the artist's work like crazy. And so their market value is going up for a variety of reasons, not just because people are buying it, but also because they had the proper museum shows, they had the proper, like, you know, academic, um, you know, uh, support, uh, you know, through critics as well, and just a, a variety of things that help support an artist's career. And um, then their, their work stops selling. And if you were to say, hey, you know, half off this work for sale, the artist is going to freak out like, hey, you can't do that. And the people who bought the work for higher amounts are like, hey, what are you doing? Like, I paid $40,000 for this painting, and now you're selling it for twenty. You're completely undermining the value of this piece that I sold, that I bought. So it's really tricky. You can't just do whatever you want. You're really locked into you know, playing by some set of rules, even if they don't necessarily work to your advantage. Um, I mean, there's ways to go around that, but, uh, you know, ultimately I believed in, and I still do believe in the integrity of that system to sort of support and protect an artist. I don't know how else it's supposed to. Um, I mean, there's ways to go around it. You know, you obviously can lower someone's prices a little. Um, as long as it's not huge, you know, or. But that's, but that's the surprise tag that people see. And, but we both know that artwork is not always sold or probably in, you know, sort of in most cases, not sold to the price that's on the, on the that, price tag. That's also true. Market, right? So I think that's, that's something that, you know, when we talk about change and what, you know, sort of could change, maybe, you know, sort of having a more, Because I, when I'm talking now, when I'm talking these days about, I had a nice conversation with um, actually my neighbor who's in a, He's actually in a, in a in a in a in a different scenario because he works with uh, stereo equipment, hi-fi record players from the '60s and the '70s. He restores them and resells them and stuff like that. So he has like a he has a, he has a truly limited market because they has you know sort of he's one of a few people who do that. And but he also has the same problem that we have that people go to Amazon and buy a plastic a record player and you know not an old model that you right. know sort of. So right. we've been talking about um, about the market, and he does not have much understand. He doesn't know much about my market, and he's always says, "When I'm in your gallery, and I see the prices, I never understand the prices. I see it's a nice work, and I see that you've been working for many years. But why does this work cost? I don't know, six thousand euros. I don't understand it. So why don't you go and and make those prices more transparent and help people understand? Like all the paintings in your gallery will cost the same price, for example." You know, and then you sort of you start explaining, okay, but this artist cannot cost as much as this artist, and it's very complicated for other people to to understand what we're doing. And maybe there is a way. This could be one of the ways that you know, sort of that we're going and saying, okay, this is this much, and we explain more why it's this price, or um, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah, if I had solutions, then everything I, would be a lot easier. Yeah, I don't I don't believe it. I mean, I've had people talk about like sort of the commercialization of this. How can we commercialize this and make this transparent and make it really easy so people can just buy it like it's a thing? Well, it's not a thing. It's not just an ob. It's not it's, uh, it's not just stuff. You know, it's special, you know, in my mind, it's magical. It's somebody's yeah. vision. It's can be spiritual. You can't put a price tag really on it like that you it shouldn't be 
objectified like that. We have to objectify it to an extent in order to support those artists and pay our bills. And of course, I don't want to just pay my bills. I want to have a comfortable life. I don't need to be rich, but I have a, want to have a comfortable life. And I think you, it's, you don't want to make this transparent in a, like this big public way. I mean, in, in a way that like, it's just like you could click on a site and it explains it all. Like, no, I mean, the, the idea of the gallery is supposed to be, you're supposed to be interacting with the gallerist. You're supposed to be having conversations with people about the art. It's not supposed to just be, a, it's not supposed to be about this easy way to make commerce and make money. That's not what it's about. If that's what it was about, I wouldn't be doing it. I'd be, I'd be like in the stock market or something. Like, <laughs> I, I believe in the sanctity. I believe in the church of the gallery or that interaction um, in some capacity. I mean, that's what it is for me. That's the struggle now of it not working and having to figure out other ways to sort of engage and also make money um, so you can support yourself. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, uh, but I think I think we're just we're 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 circling around this this uh, topic. It's not necessarily where I started with the online thing, but I think that's, that's one of the part is is the commerce that people learn to understand through the internet in many many aspects. Like you just go and you know sort of like I go on a, I, I want to buy anything any product at all. I go and basically type it into Google, and then I get. Uh, 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 comparison charts, you know, from where can I get it cheaper and why it's better. And people look at, you know, it's got a five-star rating, four-star rating. Um, yeah, but that's... They look at these texts. So uh, people are getting used to, and we need we need more clients than the ones that we have and different clients maybe. So um, people do not understand how we do prices in, in, in art. Well, listen, I don't have any interest in interacting with the art market in that way. That is not why I am doing this. And I also don't think people who collect, who really collect, are looking for that. You know, it's supposed to be an actively engaged thing that you're involved with. You're supposed to be going, looking, seeing, exploring. Collecting is exploring. It's uh, educating yourself in a lot of ways. Like, it's not supposed, it's not about commerce. It's, you know, maybe by purchasing that piece, you're sort of buying that experience. I mean, there is a commerce, obviously there's a commerce aspect to it. And if you're coming to something and there's a very limited amount of it and it's not going to be made forever. And maybe that artist over a 10 year period makes, you know, this 10 years worth of work. And maybe there's a period that you're really into and there's a specific painting that you really want and you now have it and you own it and you can afford to buy it. Not for everyone. You can't, Not everyone can be part of the art market. Most people can't because it's expensive. And it's expensive because if you're an artist and you spend a year making 10 paintings and that's your whole livelihood, you got to get paid for it. If you're spending, you know, a month making a painting, you got to get paid for it. And as you get better at it and as you've been doing it for a while, your price goes up. And, you know, I mean, it's different for everyone. I mean, most artists do that and they don't, it doesn't happen. Most art creative people are never going to make a good living off of what they do. There's just not enough of a market out there and there's too many creative people. And it's a very, very limited niche market. So, and I believe in that. Um, if I want to sell things to a larger market and I want to make it accessible, that's what prints are for. That's what 
art objects are for, you know, lower and less expensive things. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of, I, I just don't see how I would never want to like apply the sort of Amazon, uh, way of buying art, like based on stars. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm just saying that's like what people are used to. And I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm totally, um, I, I understand that what, what I mean is not that we, that we change this. Uh, uh, so we become, there's an Amazon for art, but just being able to explain this better. And well, I think you, know, become, you know, I, I, actually, I think that, okay. You know, make I think easier, that make an easier access for people to, to, uh, to understand why there's, Where's this is pricing system? And for this, for example, I think one thing that could help is not saying, okay, we slash prices or here's a special sale or everyone can buy this work, but by being open and being just transparent and well, saying, okay, this, let me, you know, like, this, this simply costs 25,000 euro or 50,000 and you cannot afford it, but now you know the price. And that also helps to understand sort of that there are artists that are very, very expensive And then there are artists that are not that expensive, but who might get there. Well, know? let so, me ask like, you a question. How do you envision this? Because I, I, my thinking about this is your friend came in, the next door neighbor. This was your opportunity to have that conversation with him and explain that to him. And also maybe, you know, us doing these podcasts, we, we educate the general public on how that works. But I mean, how do you foresee, you know, sounds to me like you're talking about some simple system. Maybe it's online. Maybe you go to the website and here's the artist and like, oh, you want to know about why this artist prices it? Go over here and look at it and we'll explain it all to you. Is that what you mean? Ah, uh, no, it's not that easy. <laughs> like <laughs> nothing is. No, no. It's, I mean, I just, I just, I just think we're building many, many barriers and maybe I've explained this all, you know, sort of explained this wrong or, you know, sort of said wrong. I think it, It would be helpful to um, to just to just be blunt and say, okay, I have this exhibition of artist X. These are this is basically what I'm doing. You know, sort of I have prices up, but then you know, sort of, of course, people come to the gallery and I have the opportunity to talk to them and say, okay, but uh, you know, like this artist, like two years ago, I bought a painting and it was only 500 euro. Now it's like at this price. And say, yes, but you know what happened in that time? So I can engage with them. I can. I, that's what I mean. They can and ex can explain it, but. Coming back to the internet theme topic, you just see people just see, you know, see like set followers for price, you know, so from, you know, like somebody says, oh, but that artist, he's not really famous. I mean, he's not even, I mean, I've, 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 I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working with a couple of artists who are not, who aren't really on Instagram, especially when they're older, they, they don't do this. They're doing well for themselves. So there is a way to do this, but how do you expand this? And, and I personally, I personally think like when I'm going, Like for for example, on Artsy, you know, Artsy this this, this big platform for yeah. for for galleries where they sell work. Uh, it's there's there's galleries um, like mine who are basically completely transparent in regards to prices. This is the work because I say here's this is a platform for people who are interested and educated. People get into conversations with you, and when you receive a mail, you see oh this person collects this. He's already been buying something over here, so they get a price. You know, and but then you see a lot of artists that I'm working with in other galleries, and when I'm not necessarily talking about hundred thousand dollar artworks, but I'm talking about artists that you know sort of that are in a in a, in a mid level price price range, and then it's like 
for price, contact the gallery. And I think that's where in these days where everything's so open, that's a barrier, you know, that's kind of keeping people back. I have, again, I, I kind of I have mixed feelings about this because for us, I totally have mixed feelings about all of this. <laughs> I have totally, you know, for us, you know, uh, we're, we're the whole thing of is if you come to me and talk to me, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. Mm -hmm. So I'm always transparent with people. I just don't need to blow that out to the public. You know, that's not information for the general public. Uh, because, you know, you know, you and I would not, I would not talk about an artist's career on this podcast. It'd be very unfair uh, to them, you know, um, you know, unless, you know, you're speaking about them in like these super favorable terms. And, uh, you know, maybe there are certain artists that we can talk about in terms of their market and, and, and why it did what it did, et cetera, et cetera. But I can always sit down with somebody for any artist that I'm representing and explain the prices. Occasionally I've gotten artists who really wanted to jack up their price and I would argue with them back and forth about it. We might move forward with their pricing and maybe it would work and maybe it wouldn't work. And if it didn't work, we probably didn't work together again. Um, and if it did work, I was always kind of my collectors like, this works pretty high. And I'd say, I kind of agree with you, but I don't have any say over this. And there's enough people who want to buy it. And so we're selling it. Um, and, you know, we've always tried to like when I, I built a lot of artists careers. So I started artists out where we we're selling prints for $500. And then, I mean, like I'd speak about someone like Ray Caesar, who I, I don't work with really anymore. I don't work with them, but, um, you know, we started, he was making these digital prints and nobody was really, you know, kind of doing this before because he was, making work his medium was he created his work on this program called Maya, which is this digital software program so it wasn't like he was making a reproduction of something of a painting and then making a chiclet printer or something of it his work was created completely in this digital realm and it was amazing and people didn't even realize they thought it was a painting and they couldn't tell and he would spend hours making these and so we originally were selling them they were like 10 addition to 10 and we'd sell them for like five, $600 each. Not very much. I mean, he eventually started making much bigger works and suddenly these pieces were going for $20,000. Okay. But there was a slow build up to that. It wasn't like we just did it overnight and the demand was there. And you know, I'm not, again, not really involved with him. I mean, his market, I think is still pretty strong. Um, but I'm not being that I'm not involved with it. I personally don't know if it was as strong as it is. And also, what'll happen is once an artist has put out a lot of inventory out into the market, you know, when an artist is just coming out, now I'm going to give away the secrets. Um, <laughs> oftentimes, first of all, there is no rule for any artist. Every artist's career is different. Everything can change for every artist. Their work could be very similar. They're going to have a different career. Cause is something we could talk about for hours. Cause. Yes. Um, cause is this complete anomaly, and he's an anomaly in my opinion. I discussed this oftentimes with my good friend Christian Strike uh, about his career and uh, uh, other people because it's really interesting. And, and this stuff's been written about and that sort of thing as well. So it's not like I'm saying, any, saying anything that hasn't been discussed publicly. Um, but uh, where was I going with this? But, you know, uh, when an artist is first coming out, people get really hyped on him and they're very excited. 
and everybody wants something. And they're also like, oh, I'm getting in on this thing early. So every artist that I've worked with has gone through this as part of their arc. And so everybody wants it. It's less expensive and they're buying it because they know it's going to be, they think it's going to be worth more and they're just excited about it. Well, after the artist has been out for a while and they've made a lot of work, so that means there's a lot of their inventory floating out there, there's less of a demand. Unless they're one of the handful of artists whose market continues to grow. That's a really hard thing for any artist to do. So you sort of have to maintain your market and build it slowly over a period of your lifetime to make work, to show important you know, galleries, to show with important museums, to get, you know, important like, you know, art criticism or academic support. Um, all these different things that play into building an artist's career and help sustain an artist's career. And there's so many things that can screw it up too. It's this constant thing. It just, it's, it's never like you could just sit and be comfortable ever. Um, you really have to be careful. And again, the situation is different for each artist. You can't say this is how you do it for every artist. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so where was I going with this? So, you know, after a while, someone's, their prices may go up. There's a lot of stuff out in the market. You know, they're not going to be selling as quickly and as much as they used to. They, in fact, may be making really good money because they don't need to sell, you know, 50 paintings for $1,000 each to pay, support them for their, that year. Now maybe they're selling 20 paintings for $20,000 or something. You know, I'm just giving you some numbers. So they don't need to sell as much. And they can sort of approach the art differently. Maybe they can make less. They can get real focused on it. Um, again, it's different with every artist. I can talk about, you know, somebody who's a photorealist painter versus somebody who paints really cartoony flat imagery. Photorealist painter, maybe he's taken forever to make a body of work. The artist who's like making this, you know, flat cartoony imagery can maybe put out lots of work. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, you could, and, and even, you know, you could also say that the artist who's putting out this flat work that's really cartoony and actually making a lot of it is actually making more money than the artist who's painstakingly taking, you know, two months to make a painting. Um, but it's specific to each artist and you have to discuss it as specific to each artist. Yeah. Okay. But that's, that's basically part of the, you know, sort of course that we cannot, we, we can't, you can't compare anything in, 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 in our business from a commerce point of view. You, you can't get five star ratings or one star ratings uh, for artists. You can only say, I like this. I don't like this because you will never know how this, this work is, uh, is produced unless you actually engage with, uh, with the background. You know, it's like, you can like stuff. I think when, when, for example, Shepard Ferry started to get bigger for a lot of people was the imagery that they got really attached to and of course that there's like a political and social aspect to his work but i think when it starts to get big not many people were actually even aware that how he's how he's creating this and how he's producing this and there's other artists where you kind of look into you know so if they have like very intrinsic work uh they work really detailed um they do stuff that you look at and you don't even know how it's created so i think that's that's a point where where we both disagree it's this one of the reasons why i'm in 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 art and not only doing my own art because why i got into uh presenting and showing other artists is because there is such a huge variety and because i believe that every artist deserves to be have someone 
uh, to to or some people or or some platform that explains uh, or gives people the opportunity to get an insight in what they're doing. You know, um, we both can talk about individual artists uh, for hours, but what people see is like you know, sort of cause, you know, for example, oh, look, you know, so now he's at a, now he's at an auction. Now he's, now he's making lots of money with, um, with what he started with many years ago, you know, uh, and, uh, and is that really so unusual? It's the same with, uh, with a lot of the artists that we're working with. You, and one, and in one interview a couple of years ago, we were already good friends. We knew each other. You said something, I think it was for Urban Nation in, in the interview. You said something in the, in the beginning, Uh, that yeah, I'm Jonathan Levine Gallery from New York, and we're working with artists who come from pop, who um, who have like a you know sort of maybe have a background in advertising, who are you know sort of like uh, sometimes cartoony. All these things that you said, not all of them, but a part, some of them were like where I said, okay, the German market is completely different. People here don't like to say this artist actually has a co background as a comic uh, artist, or he comes from pop, or it's uh, it's it has got something with advertising. The German market works completely different in how you how you present and understand artists. Like you, getting into museums in Germany, we don't have many museums, and usually all these museums are really big, so they rather acquire internationally renowned artists instead of looking around. I mean, there's probably not not many artists from Hamburg in the museums that we have in Hamburg unless they are, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of old artists, different ar epochs. But from the young artists, nobody is in a museum here. There's no private museum so, collecting. Um, collecting. All I'm saying with this is that, uh, I want to say with this is like, this is also one aspect that you cannot transfer online. I have, when I'm going back to how we present stuff online, um, like, for example, go back to online shopping with artsy when i introduced this at the beginning of this year into onto our website that we're basically doing online sales through a platform like this we're selling a lot outside of germany but we're selling more or less nothing through this platform inside germany one or two clients buy from germany the rest is all from the states or from luxembourg or denmark or so so, so i'm confused what uh what you're talking about actually well we're basically talking we're basically talking about the same thing we're basically talking about the point that we that to trying to get uh, uh commerce done online which is something that we need because the world has you know sort of like also yeah our business models have changed it's basically what we started the conversation with is has, has changed so much that we have to that we're right now in the dilemma and there, this was where i come to all the comments that we've got or the comments for getting back to jeff soto we you know suck it up guys we have to figure out how you do this so you and i and all the other gallery gallerists have to figure out a way how we how we well, change this you know but i what my thing what i was saying i'm not sure what you and i disagree on what do we disagree on you said we disagreed on something well, no we no we don't disagree <laughs> I, was just I was just provoking you in the beginning. <laughs> oh, because you're like, there's something we don't agree on. It's like, I, but I think that for each artist, yeah. you have to approach them differently. So yeah, some people I mean. might be really interested in that artist's technique. Other people won't. And there's also different kind of collectors. And oftentimes, the people, first of all, we, one thing we should point out is the vast majority, here's something to throw out there to To the, to, to the listeners, as it were, um, the vast majority of people who come into a gallery and look at the and look at artwork are artists. They are not collectors. So oftentimes, the artist is interested in how the artist made it, the technique, and all that sort of thing. And sometimes that's a really interesting conversation, and sometimes it's not.
Um, sometimes it's really interesting and sometimes it's not. It depends on the artist. If they're doing something that seems, you're like, holy crap, how did they make that? Then, And then there's sometimes someone will look at the same painting and be like, who cares how they made it? I don't care. And then someone else who's more technically, you know, is making work and maybe works, makes work similar and they're always trying to figure out how people make things are going to be like, how the hell do they make that? So it's just depends on the person, you know, quite frankly, how somebody makes something isn't always interesting to everyone. And, you know, so I just want to point that out there. Uh, personally, I'm not all that interested in knowing uh, how cause makes work. I know how he makes work. Um, I'm not really interested in knowing how um, photorealist painters make work. I know how they make work. They yeah. learn that skill. It's really not interesting to watch them. No. It might be interesting to take take someone like A.J. Fossick and, you know, put a time-lapse yeah. film on him and watch him cut and make things because it's fun to watch people do that. Or it may be fun to watch somebody silk screening, but you have to do it in this time-lapse way so you, people can see it really quick because obviously it's a very, you know, laborious uh, process. So no one's going to sit and watch. You're not going to sit and watch someone for – a month making a piece of work. So you take these videos or whatever that people are doing on Instagram online and they're showing, they're speeding up the process so you can see it. So yeah, that's interesting. But so the, the process is great, but who gives a crap if the work isn't good? I don't care about your process. If your work isn't good and I'm not, it's not resonating with me. I really don't give a shit. So, <laughs> you know, I find that people sometimes get really caught up in, in that, which I think is interesting, but that's not really what it's about for me. Yeah, but it's so diverse that people will think that it's not crap, you know, and then you and I decide this is not crap or we decide it's crap. I mean, in your career as a, as a gallerist, you've gone, you've, you've probably um, killed the beautiful enthusiasm of many, many young person or not so young person by saying I'm not interested in your work. Um, And then you went on and established the careers of a lot, lot less people because, of course, we can't throw everyone out there. Uh, so, so you're kind of, we're kind of, in a way, we're kind of gatekeepers. And um, true, yeah. But that's not even what I mean. Like, for example, I would venture to say this: that um, probably 95 of the artists out there, I don't know the exact, do not are unable to. So people make work. They're like, I can make a painting. I can paint, um, you know, a portraiture of someone. And like, look at my work. Look how my skill level. It's like, there's a lot of people out there have great skill level, but they can't put together a full body of work that has like a vision that's uniquely their own. It's almost like they're a cover band and they're coming to, and you're the record label and they're, They're covering songs. They're doing really derivative stuff, and they're covering other people's songs. And they come to you and they're to the record label, like, "I want you to put our record out." And the label's like, "I'm supposed to put music out of very thinly veiled that sounds just like somebody else, or you're actually doing exactly what someone else is doing." And so the skill thing, I'm not so impressed with. So you know, you can look at some of the artists I work with, and you, we and I both work with. We understand there's a certain craft level. Can they paint a photorealistic painting? No, they can't. That's not what they do, and that's not what we're looking at them, looking for them to do. Uh, like, I'm not looking for – I like to listen to punk rock music. I don't care if you're a virtuoso on the piano and you play classical music. <laughs> so th that's more what I'm talking about. Um, it's very hard for an artist to – actually, they may have – they can learn the skill level, 
that's actually probably the easiest part. But to actually make a consistent body of work yeah. that has a unique vision that's cohesive, that's yeah. really hard to do. And most artists will come to you with that and, you know, they, they can't they can't make that happen. I, I totally agree. I think um, I think it's not about the skill level. Like I, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I was just thinking to ask you, what do you what do you think of photorealistic painters? I mean, oh, I love photorealistic painters. But you know, sort of, you're you're not interested in how they actually you know sort of create the work. So there's a uh, for me personally, it's sometimes I I, I I very often. I mean, of course, I. I I highly uh, 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 admire their their ability to paint, but as I said, it's something that you know, sort of talented people can actually learn. But I, I rather, then again, I go and look at what they actually do with this skill. If they're just, you know, sort of painting photorealistically, I say, well, okay, why? Mm -mm. I could not sell that. You know, because I, I personally cannot sell it. I can say, well, this is a very highly talented painter. He can paint photorealistic. I mean, it's like, it looks amazing. It looks like a photo. Okay. So that's, but, it, but the thing of it so is, so there has to be something else. There has to be a different edge while you show these. That, that's well, at the end of the day, we have, you know, we have a vision. So we're curating our vision. And so when artists come in, it's like, that's got to fit in our vision. Hello? Yeah, I'm, I'm listening. Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> I thought I lost you. Um, you know, so like people go, I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm a gatekeeper for a specific thing, which is my with stuff that I like. So right. for people to put that on me is nonsense. If you come into my gallery or you come to me with your work and it doesn't fit what I do, you're, you're playing country music and I have a punk rock record label, what the hell do you expect? Like, you know, it's like I'm not in the country music. I'm in the punk rock music. Come to me if you're a punk rock band. And if you're a punk rock band, I want to see you make a punk rock music different than all the other people are doing it. You know, what's your unique vision? So with photorealism, which I actually really like, and I show photorealists, I'm looking for something that I connect with that I like, um, that I think is unique and different and cool that I'm going to get behind and I'm going to support and I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take a financial risk. I'm going to work for free and hope that it pays off. Um, so eh, that's kind of what I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's fine. We can sometimes, you know, John, you and I, we have uh, probably like, it's probably, it was just sometimes during these, these podcasts, I write down notes. Okay. When you probably have the feeling I'm, I'm away, you know, so I'm not writing whole letters, but uh, whole, whole, whole pages full. But I was just thinking that do galleries actually have to be really good talkers? Because that's one thing, you know, so we're so passionate about a few things. When you were talking about, What you were just talking about, about why you, you know, sort of work with some and certain photorealistic painters because there has to be something different to it. I was like thinking, for example, about, about some about an artist like Dan Witz, you know, it's like, right. like the, 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 the topic alone that he picks and, and how he paints it. That's the, that's the, that's a distinction towards a lot of other artists who are also very talented. Oh, I mean, you picked a perfect person. Yeah. Because I fucking love Dan Witz's paintings. Yeah, me too. And the reason I love them, and other people wouldn't necessarily take them, and he found the right dealer in me, you know, and he does other work as well. But the specific things that I really love the most were the mosh pit paintings. Of course, yeah. Because that was a reflection of my life yeah. and a reflection of my youth 
and something that still resonates with me. And it's a part of, when I see that, I'm like, that's my DI punk rock soul. And, you know, so a lot of people wouldn't necessarily respond to that work, but a lot of people, I mean, that was the whole point of what we were doing in the first place is I was showing work that people weren't interested in that didn't get represented. At some point I got successful and all of a sudden I was the gatekeeper. And I'm like, you do realize, and then artists would maybe not to say this, this, they might felt like, Oh, that guy didn't like my work or blah, blah, blah. Well, I didn't have a responsibility to anyone but myself. And I was championing what I believed in for years before anybody else believed in it. And it was really just about me and what I loved. And I don't have a responsibility to, you know, and and no gallerist has a responsibility, you know, to sort of like try to help and support every kind of artist and vision. That's not our job. Like the fact that people wouldn't even understand that um, is beyond my understanding. Uh, yeah, totally. But I mean, it's, um, it's yeah. the gatekeeper is a, is a, is a very, um, can be, a very, can be, you know, perceived as a very, uh, a bad and strong word. I, I, I mean, I think it's true. It, it's true. Yeah. It's true, but it's like people need to have perspective on it as well. But also we got kind of, as a gallerist, you have the responsibility to protect these things, these artists, these people that you, that you work with. Um, like, you know, so look at somebody like, like Dan Witz, where you say, okay, this is the, the most pit paintings. And I totally agree. We're on the same level there. It's like, it's my youth <laughs> in a way, but not as intense as he paints it, but the, as intense how I felt it, you know, probably not the experience back then. But when I see this, it's like, yeah, that's the essence of a lot of things that have something to do with me. And that's my gatekeeping. I don't exhibit artists because they're very talented or because they're very famous or because the internet says they are good, but because I have a, I can, there's a connection. Um, exactly. You know, so like come people coming into the gallery and saying, ah, oh, yeah, but I like the last series of this artist much better. Then I probably can relate to this, but I can also explain why for me, This is a development for me. This is different. I don't have to like every work in my gallery. That's but right. I have to like the artist and what he or she stands for and what they mean to me. Well, so, so, sorry, yeah. I was going to say what people don't understand is um, your relationship with an artist is gallerist, or you know, I say gallerist because being a, a dealer is a different is about something else. Um, it's more about commerce. A gallerist is more about you know marketing, promoting, you know building an artist's career. Um, but what people don't realize is you work with an artist, you're invested in an artist and you're like, okay, we're invested. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time telling artists what to do. Um, they wouldn't like that. And if they want feedback from me, I'll give it to them. I've really worked with artists and helped them create bodies of work and they were great. And sometimes we were off, um, in terms of they wanted feedback, where should I go? What should I do? Um, But a lot of times they just do what they want and you just have to kind of go like, okay, we got this body work. This person went off trying some other thing and I support them in that because if you don't allow them to do that, they're just going to be pissed off that you feel like that you're holding them back. So then you have the show and people, it doesn't resonate. Maybe it doesn't sell, blah, blah, blah. You lose money. But that's the, that's the, um, that's the commitment. 
And that's a commitment to that artist. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, if it's not working, you kind of go like, listen, this isn't working. I can't lose any more money. Um, I love you. And maybe down the road we'll work together again if this work starts going in a different direction. I mean, that's the truth. You know, I've hung on and hung out with artists for, I always would do a thing where I was like, I have to show an artist at least three times to help build their career and really establish their, their body of work. And it's kind of hard to do that these days for a variety of reasons. But, um, you know, when that period of time, say you show an artist three times in six years, you don't know what you're going to get. And there's so many reasons for that. Um, and you know, you get, but you'll get work coming in that you don't like, you just really don't like it, but you can't, you don't really say to the artist, I really don't like this body of work because they don't want to hear it. They have to kind of, <laughs> they're all psyched about it. They spent all this time They're You're, you're dealing with someone's development as they're developing, they're making mistakes and you have to allow that if you can afford to allow that. And so this is the dynamic that you're dealing with. That's so difficult in this business. And um, I did that for years and I'm still doing that. And, you know, it's so risky as a result of, of that. And then the artist has the show and then they realize, oh, they got enough feedback where they realized after it's done, they got it out of their system. Maybe that wasn't such a good idea or it was something I needed to do. And hopefully they were grateful that you supported them in it. And hopefully the next show, they, they figure it out and they do something different. Like it could just be like you have an artist, you're like, I just want to make giant paintings. And you're like, your market doesn't sustain giant paintings. But you let them do the giant paintings and you might sell a couple. and Or not one. Or not one. And, uh, you know, so that, that's what people don't really, they don't understand. Yeah. Um, that's why it really takes deep pockets and wealth to support an artist's career. Um, because it costs too much. It's just you know it's too risky. So so because of not growing up rich and wealthy, is, did we choose the wrong uh, profession, Jonathan? Because mm, <laughs> I mean, sure. we're, we're supporting this with our passion and with basically the money that comes in. I I have this, you know, you know my special situation with being an artist and running a gallery as well at the same time. Right. I was frowned upon for many centuries. Right. Um, <laughs> But uh, it also became kind of okay, you know, sort of uh, in the past, I think, 50 years, uh, which not so many people have lived through. We we both did. But I mean, like who's 50 and is doing this art? Most people in art now are pretty young. Um, so I think it's okay. But one thing that I always have people go for, I, right now, I have this exhibition of my work, the first solo exhibition at my own gallery since 2009. Uh, the first solo exhibition in Hamburg since 2011, which was at a different gallery. So people come around and see the red dots at the works. They see my prices because I have a good market, you know, I have a good reputation, I have a good standing. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I kind of have a feeling from the reception I'm getting, this is kind of a good show and I really enjoyed doing this. So I'm standing here with people and say, Oh, that's nice. Oh, it's also very nice that like a hundred percent of that is yours. And I'm just like, okay, but I do 200% of the work, I do 200% of the work and I'd be happy to give 50% off of the money to somebody else who does these other 100% of the work because I don't really want to do it for this. Right. You know, so there's always like a very different perception of what we're doing and it's very often reduced to the price tags, uh, the, the, the money that we supposedly could make. But to make these decisions, what we're showing, because I mean, I have, you know, you and me both, 
we had exhibitions where we had a lot of value on the walls, but debt in our pockets because we could not sell this or not right. enough to, you know, sort of sustain both right. sides, the artist and, and the gallery. That's right. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of a, it always has been a very risky business. Uh, I think ideally if somebody comes to me and says, I want to open a gallery, I would say, okay, how, you know, sort of where's your funding coming from? Are you wealthy? Are your parents wealthy? Do you, have you <laughs> considered marrying a rich woman or a rich man? Um, but I think the only thing that, that keeps this afloat for both of us, and we've been talking in the first podcast as well about, there's a lot of frustrating, uh, fr uh, frustration in that one as well with the whole, uh, internet thing, taking a lot of our market away. Uh, and, and the development of society, of course, also taking market away, but we're in it because of all the passion and because we, we discovered, let's get back one more time to Dan Witz. If you see his work, like you saw his work or, you know, sort of, he saw something in it and it develops, you're kind of hooked. It's kind of an addiction. You kind of have to do this. Um, so there's no big, no real explanation for this. No, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I never got, I I can't imagine too many people like us ever as same with artists. Nobody gets into this business because they're thinking they're thinking rationally at all about their future. Um, and when you're young, it's easy to do that. And so it was very easy for me to take these risks. I mean, I made a lot of sacrifices to take these risks. You know, I didn't follow a traditional life path. Um, I was, It wasn't making a lot of money when my friends were, you know, I've, I've not gotten married and have kids. I mean, I, I have a life partner, um, but I'm, you know, we, we're not having kids. I don't think, and you know, we're just kind of too old for that. And I, I don't know how I would have done that to be honest with you and, and, and run a gallery. because the gallery was like my kid and the artists were like my kids as well in a way. Um, and it w was really demanding But, you know, I thought when I was younger, I'm going to invest in this thing. It's going to build as these things do as you build your name and the investment will be worth it. But unfortunately, the Internet and all these different options kind of destroyed that way of building a gallery. And it just can't function like that anymore unless you're really super privately wealthy and or you're dealing in the market like it's a stock. And, and you're dealing with artists that way. And I have no interest, and I say this all the time, I have no interest, I had no interest in being in the market that way. And there was probably a point in time when I could have, where I could have brought in investors and we could have really gotten into sort of managing artists' careers for big money. And that's just not who I am. Um, so, but, you know, I think when we started it made sense, these sacrifices, and it was going to pay off if you did it right. But that's not the way it is anymore. It's just like the music business. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I like that comparison with the music business. I'm not sure whether we already, you know, I think you already mentioned this in the first podcast, but I think it's pretty close, um, except for the fact that uh, in the music industry, they the solutions there are, Uh, for example, for, for some bands or most bands, uh, for, for the business was also going on tour. So like getting people back again in a personal interaction. And right now we're having the difficulty or the problem that the personal interaction moves away from us. 
because people think they have already seen everything online. Uh, and also because, you know, sort of, I think yeah, I, I'd like to forbid artists to post everything online. Personally, if they would ask me, I would tell them just don't do it. <laughs> but, um, but so we have a diff, we have, we have to still approach this and still figure out how this, this, this actually can work, um, towards us because the one thing for me that despite the market changing and everything changing and everybody's trying to find ways is there's 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 one thing in the art business that will always be the same and it's not fairs are being successful or you have to do these fairs or you have to be at Basel to be wealthy at some point or you have to be on that platform or you have to have a great incident instagram account or you have to these are this is nothing that means anything to the art market the only thing that will always be the same is that an artwork experience in person is the only way to experience an artwork it's the only way i would agree but that's not how i do business i know i know the business that's what i'm saying it's land of moves away from we have to find is conundrum the right word? Like, do yeah, we? Yeah, quadun- quadundrum. I, did I say it right? I can't. I don't even know if I can. Say I don't know. Damn I'm, I'm, I'm tempting. I'm tempted to look it up. Quadundrum. Quadundrum. Yeah. I don't know. You know. So, like, how do we solve this? I don't know that there's a. You know, I don't know there's. I don't have any solutions for any of these things right now myself, and I'm personally not looking for solutions. I am experiencing life, and I'm dipping my toes into things, and I'm trying things out, and. That's how I'm doing it because I think that's the only authentic way to do it. You just can't run it like, oh, this is going to work now or that's going to work now or try this. Like, I don't, that's just not the way to approach it. I think you have to approach it really organically. And I think it will very be very specific to you and very specific to the artists you work with. And, you know, I think the thing to do is to scale down, which is what I've done, which is what you've done. So you can get back to a point where you can sort of, approach things differently like i'm just like well i'm not going to participate in this gallery model anymore because it doesn't make sense i'm still participating in it to some extent but like in a very modified extent and it's very fluid um because it has to be um so yeah that's that's what I it's a lot say. of trial and error, of course. You know, I've been changing my the model of how. I mean, I'm I've, I was always always convinced since you know like sixteen years I'm doing this gallery now from the beginning that you know sort of you kind of have to change uh, constantly to see what works and what does not work. Um, so uh, I've changed this a couple of times. I'm I'm very happy with what I've done the last uh, one and a half years, basically. Uh, by on one hand, uh, 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 sort of like changing the gallery, going back to the to where it started. It came, you know, Helium Cowboy started as that I had this great artist studio, and I thought it's amazing to do exhibitions here because a lot of artists they just don't they don't just know many a lot of things, you know, outside of what they're doing, which is totally cool and totally fine because they should you know, the, what they're special in the art, but they don't know anything about the marketing or doing exhibitions or the whole sales thing. So I said, I have some knowledge of it. So I started in my studio, started hearing call in my studio. Now I'm basically back to having a gallery. That's also my studio. So, and it's totally looking totally different. So I'm happy with that. It kind of works also like this podcasting kind of works. It helps me also to talk to many people, uh, how they see things and, and, and how this works, because I think it's a time that we have to discuss these things. I agree with you. We will not find a universal solution that will fit every gallery. And, and I was just, you know, like, I don't, I have a, I have a fantastic space, um, where I'm very comfortable working in and where people come in and they really like it. 
really like it a lot. I think I've done something nice with this, but I don't have any exhibition lined up for 2019 and it's uh, the 19th, December 19, 2018. And I have not yet sort of made, get my, get my head around what I really want to do next year. I don't want to do any kind of shows that I just like to do shows. And today I was just thinking, maybe, thinking, maybe it's, maybe it's like two exhibitions a year and they're, but they're really good. You have the whole thing lined up. You have one artist or maybe two artists, but probably just one and you work and it has to be a mid-career artist at least you make a catalog you make all these things work you create anticipation you i don't know like the special exhibition for this artist in his life as well so why not focus on something really special you know i mean if you know if that kind of works but these are things that go through my head and maybe tomorrow i have a different idea so right. i i think right now the time is very good to kind of step what you're doing you know sort of like stepping back thinking of what to do we're we're both not stopping being active we're just not doing the amount of exhibitions anymore that people could expect from us the past years yeah Which and I, yeah and you have to figure out what works for you individually like this is an opportunity for me and you both where in a lot of ways uh what i call myself now is a creative entrepreneur. And so yeah. this gives me the opportunity to go out into the world and do what I want to do. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean I don't do exhibitions, which I love and the interaction I love. It just means I don't have to continually create them and I can work in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I was forced to do this as a result of the market changing, but I think at the end of the day, I'm probably going to be a lot happier and I feel really good about what I achieved but i don't need to continue to do that or recreate that because at the end of the day it's not needed anymore um and you made me think about you know if i have this new space that i moved into a couple weeks ago we just got internet on saturday and i have a gallery space in it so people might think oh you're gonna have regular exhibitions in there i'm like hell no i don't even know what i'm doing this year um mm -hmm. i th i know that i'll have a couple exhibitions in it but the the reason I choose to do them will be all over the place. It will be maybe ones like a real like mid-level career special exhibition. Maybe it's just one like I have an artist. He lives down the street. He can put, bring his work over real quick. It's not going to cost me much. Let's just have some work in the space. Uh, that kind of thing. And some artists are like, well, why would you choose that artist over me to have a physical show? It's like, because it didn't cost me anything. <laughs> you know, it was cheap. And I don't need to spend all this money on shipping, storage, flying people out, putting people up, all that cost that people. And then we'll continue to do online exhibitions. If I find that an artist is selling really well, that it makes oh. sense to do that, then we'll do that. Um, but, you know, I could have an artist. I feel like, you know what? I'm going to have an artist come in and do an installation. You can turn this space into an installation for two months. And on Fridays, you can stop by, kind of like what you do, and we'll set up a little bar, and we can all hang out and have a drink, and we'll have a little club in there. There's no money being made. We're just doing it because it's fun, and it's a, a way to interact with the community. I still want to get people together and, and do things so I can interact with people and inter interact with the community that I helped create and that I've been a part of and keep this dialogue going because actually at the end of the day, that is the most important thing to me, and I so miss it. And doing it online or looking at people's Instagram <laughs> is, and then I'm on it all the time because I have to be for my business. Quite frankly, I wish I didn't. I wish Instagram didn't exist. I'm saying this. I wish that Instagram exploded. I wish it was gone from the world. 
Yeah. Of course, that's never going to happen. It, it's no. going to be replaced by something else and blah, blah, that's blah. Which is even worse, probably. But it's, uh, it's, it's been, a, in my opinion, it's been a, a, a cultural killer. It's been a, yeah. you know, it, it, it's killed human interaction. Like, so anyway, I'm, I'm bad. Hey, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know where, the, where I saw this. Um, I think in a TV show recently, and there was um, this, this guy who was retired coming back into his own company and saying, oh, let's have a meeting in the conference room um in like 10 minutes and then yeah okay his assistant says yes and then he goes to the conference room like when the meeting is up and the whole management team is in there like 30 people and they're all on their uh, uh on their phones and on their uh, uh tablets and stuff like that and nobody's looking up and then this old guy says well what 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 happened to people talking to each other and his assistant said well they're talking to each other the others are just not in the same room You know, like you're talking to people, you're, you're chatting with people, you're just like, you know, sort of constantly in a, in a, in a, you know, so I think society has to still learn that even though if young people think that they know how the, all this works, I think it's about society starting to learn this new kind of behavior, you know, so I'm well, very happy. I'm very privileged that I have a son who's like 20 who deals with these issues on a, on a, on a, on an even worse basis than I do, because that's the way how they communicate. And uh, so I can learn from him and can understand this and see this uh, because of course I'm not a computer illiterate. I think uh, our generation still invented the whole shit and is also still responsible for all these Instagram and Facebook stuff. Um, <laughs> But yeah, in a way we did. Yeah, they just <laughs> got to play with it. You know, some, this is just a quote as well, you know, so we invented this, you're just going to play with it. But that's not true because these guys, you know, so like the 20-year-old, 25-year-olds, they have to live with it. That's all they know. Um, so coming back, you know, until it's the end of this, this podcast, because I mean, we're still, we're still going to do a couple of parts, I think, because I personally enjoy this a lot. And, um, and I think it's, uh, it's still uh, valuable what we're talking about right. to other people for other people uh but coming back to the to to actually what i said let's talk about online which we didn't really do <laughs> um uh, i think this is changing our business but our business is not necessarily oh, not our business business is the wrong word what we're doing cannot necessarily change that much just how we're doing it and how we're getting people to interact with us and with the artists and i also think i believe that artists will at some point eventually figure out that Uh, you know, so there's one other thing which I, you know, sort of just, you know, I, I don't want to start this, but there's also like something we can talk about everything, all the, the, we have so many large events with 5,000 artists and there are young galleries or not so young galleries who are bringing up 50 new artists uh, every year. I mean, I think I personally, and I know your gallery, but of course I don't know every show that you've did. I know that you're working with coming back to the photorealistic painters that as always has been a passion of yours, despite all the great artists that you're working with, but there's something that you see in this that I personally, for my gallery, never saw and never understood. But now, these days, there are like 500 painters who are probably talent-wise or skill-wise equally good as Dan Witz, but will never ever in their whole life create one painting like Dan did. Right. You know, so where, where do we make the, 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 you know, so where, where do we decide what, what, what do we see? Which, which way are we going? You know, so it's now I'm starting rambling. Now it's time for you to take over, but uh, the, <laughs> the finale of this one, but you know what I mean? You know, sort of, it's like, there's too much passion in both of us to just stop this. Um, 
or 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 turn around and do something completely different. I mean, I think these days you could be more successful with selling toys again. You know, probably financially. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, you know, I haven't. I'm not there yet. Um, and I have other business models and things that I'm going to be trying, and whether they're going to work or not, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm about to launch this like um, an app. It's going to be called Levine, and it's going to be like this portal for you know, people that I choose that I curate to promote and market themselves into this app, sell their products, et cetera. And the way I make money is I get a percentage of it, right? So it's almost like an Amazon, but it's not like Amazon. It's really like, and then I put cultural content in there. Your face, your Instagram feeds can feed in there. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes like a place people go. It's a, kind of a lifestyle brand. Now, I don't know if it's going to work. We're just going to give it a shot. You know, we'll talk about music, it'll have music, you know, it'll have, you know, fashion, things that I'm kind of interested in that reflect me. But again, I don't know if it's going to work. We're going to try to do collaborations with brands, be it like a sneaker company like Vans or Levi's or like mm -hmm. stuff that I like. I like, I like Penguin. That's like a company I like. Um, or Gorin, the hat company or something yeah. like this, right? Um you know, maybe we do podcasts and that's something that we end up doing. You know, I'm sure you and I were doing this in a very kind of raw way and we're just babbling and hopefully it's not too boring for people. Um, you know, there's just different things I'm thinking about. You know, I'm thinking about my business as a brand as opposed to a gallery anymore. But what I do under that umbrella, uh, I haven't quite completely figured out. Whatever seems to work is probably the direction I'm going to go in. Um but I can't say like, oh, this thing's going to work and I'm going to pursue this because that's how much the world's changed that you can't really do that. Um, and everything's changing so quickly. You can't really depend on like, oh, I'm going to build my whole business around Instagram. It's like, well, that might change. That has changed, quite frankly. That's, you know, I, already, already has changed. I mean, it's, it's not functioning for people like it used to. It stopped doing that a couple of years ago. I, and there was, a, there was a message. There was a, and I'll say a couple more things and we should probably close this out because we've been talking for too long but um somebody an artist uh that i used to work with uh jonathan viner was mentioning on jeff soto's um uh, they had you know jeff soto had posted about yeah, that yeah. and, and jonathan viner was saying something to the effect of well you know you could have all these instagram followers and you know you're not actually selling people every time people will inquire they'll ask you they'll direct message you but you're not really selling anything um, it's not happening. It's not working that way. And maybe it's working for some people. I, I see it works for some people who are really super internet savvy. The Instagram becomes almost a TV commercial, ongoing TV, reality TV show where they're constantly showing themselves. So there's a lot of like pretty girls who do this, which kind of annoys me. Um, everyone's showing their process. It seems like from my perspective, they're, they're, people seem like overly self-absorbed with this. And like, I don't really want to sell art this way. This isn't what, you know, and it, it works for them, but I don't, how long will it work for them? Uh, because everyone just keeps copying it and the whole market's oversaturated and flooded. And, um, you know, you know, it just comes off as inauthentic or something. And like, I don't know, it's just, it's confusing at the end of the day. Um, but it, it, I was just saying like, uh, you know, that, that's that, that I know artists that that Instagram was working for really well for a while and then it stopped. It doesn't anymore. And 
that's probably the majority of them. I shouldn't say that, but everyone's like, this isn't fucking working anymore. Yeah, nobody wants to say that because nobody wants to say, I'm struggling, my career is hurting, blah, blah, blah. Nobody wants to say that. They don't want to admit it because they think it's just them. But in fact, it's most people. And then there's a handful of people who are killing it, but they're a minority. Yeah, it just can't handle the volume. You know, it's just too much. Everybody's screaming, me, 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 me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. You know, so like it's, and that's very, that's very, of course it does, it kind of has to collapse at some point. And some point will make, some people will make money with it and some people will lose their mind over it. Um, you know, so we just have to, you know, so basically it's when, when, a, when, a, when a social media application reaches this kind of point, you're basically just looking out for what, what happens next and how can we, how can we find something else that starts to excite people? But that's not the, that is not the way forward. No, that's not the way forward. And that is not, that's not a problem. That is not the way forward. I I would think that by now people would realize that that's not the way forward. Like I, hopefully people get to the point to realize this isn't working and that I would almost like us to go back to, you know, an older way of doing things because it worked, but maybe, I don't know. I mean, that's a longer conversation. That's really another longer conversation. Yeah. Um, but I want to say in terms of shameless self-promotion, I'm going to take this on a whole other level. <laughs> shameless self-promotion. I've been shamelessly self-promoting myself, and that is my rock and roll band. I know. <laughs> Cyclone Static. So if you happen to see me, if you're one of my friends on Facebook, realize I know I'm shamelessly self-promoting myself. But can you, can you really can you shamelessly uh, self-promote an indie band? I know that indie means something different today, but like a, what, what are you call today, power punk band. Can you? I mean, this this you can't promote it enough. For me personally, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I you know, we'll, we'll, what's that? We'll do one of these podcasts. We just do about your music. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We could talk about music all day long. Yeah, yeah, that's good. But yeah. I just thought I, you know, because I'm like, oh, they're like, well, Jonathan's always selflessly, you know, <laughs> shamelessly. Yeah, you know what? I am because if I don't, how the hell is anyone supposed to see it? You know what? You might think we really suck, and maybe we do suck, but it's really fun for me. So, <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's good music. People should listen to it. Cyclone Static. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm promoting it. Yeah, look it up. What is it? What is it? We have a Facebook page, and we also have a Bandcamp page, and our record comes out February. 8th. I, I just I got I, I just googled you recently, and you're coming up pretty high. You know, so it's easy to find you. Yeah, you know, you know I got, got some good press. I, I had a. Yeah, just for everyone to know, Jonathan is not singing. He's not playing the guitar. He plays the drums. I'm a drummer. I'm not in the front. I'm very behind. I'm the behind the scenes guy. Yeah, and looking good doing it. Yeah, try. All right, let's stop. Let's stop this. Um, okay. Let's um, let's continue this. Uh, I think this one, um, this podcast. I mean, we continue this in the new year. I mean, it's uh, it's the end of December. It's shortly before Christmas while we're recording this. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure right now when I'm putting it out. Maybe I, I was thinking of putting it out just right on, on, on Christmas Eve, like on the 24th. Sure. Maybe that's a good idea. Um, and, um, yeah. And then I can selflessly, uh, shame, selflessly, shamelessly self-promote a, a project that I've been doing with music because, you know, so like this, probably the old man thing to do. I've, uh, I've just, I've recorded a, a song. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. For, yeah. For, for, I didn't record it for charity. I recorded it because I have all this equipment here uh, and like a mic <laughs> in my face all the time. And I have my camera, my, my guitars around here. And if this one guitar that I can basically plug in the same, 
uh, audio tool that I use for the for the podcast, and I recorded "Blue Christmas" by Elvis Presley, um, which is a song I recorded actually initially for my wife, uh, and uh, because she likes me singing, and so I thought it could be a nice idea to do this for for charity, you know. So like people download the song, and then they uh, when they when they donate something for for a project for homeless people in Hamburg. So uh, yeah, maybe you know, sort of like if I still if I still do this before Christmas, uh, I might close this this podcast. You with should this you should close it with that. That's great. And uh, and uh, yeah, because I think it's a it's a good time to think about. Um, about others, not just ourselves. And I think in art, in art, artists, gallerists, collectors, we all think a lot about ourselves or we talk a lot about ourselves. Uh, so for, I mean, for me, it's always a good time to, to kind of step, you know, sort of step back and, you know, get off the landscape for landscape for some time, uh, some time. Um, so maybe that's something we should do now, you know, just, uh, close this for today i think it was uh, again very nice not you know I, I don't think it's i think i don't think we can actually start with a topic i was initially thinking let's find a topic <laughs> and we talk about that but uh, well you know somebody might i might just say if you have people have any suggestions yeah that would a, be nice they have a topic they want us to talk about yeah that we haven't thought of send it our way say hey yeah. we really think you should talk about this i'm like okay yeah. on this podcast we're going to focus on this yeah. And we'll talk about it. Um, and sure. I would also just wish everybody a happy holidays. Yeah, me too. All right. Jonathan, thank you very much. Again, you know, pleasure talking to you. The good thing about doing this podcast is we talk more often. I know it is. It's true. It's like just having a conversation. All right. All right, my friend. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Talk soon. Choose. still waiting for the song Blue Christmas to start, I had to take it down. The license by GEMA was only active for the duration of the fundraiser. But the whole thing was pretty successful. A lot of people downloaded my cover version and donated for the Sonnenschein Café for the homeless. So I'm pretty sure that I'll do something similar again this year around Christmas. Have a good one and thanks for listening. <laughs>